Welcome to another episode of Fukin Conversation. Uh, again, so excited for my guest this morning. It's Monday. Uh, we have Dr. Heather McGregor, who's an assistant professor of curriculum theory in the Faculty of Education at Queen's University. Uh, she's currently the principal investigator of a Shirk Insight Development Grant that uh, funds uh, the social studies and history in the Anthropocene Network. Uh, this is the current research project that Heather and her research team are working on. Heather's academic career began with, with an undergraduate thesis on environmental history of Nunavut, which is where she grew up. Her research questions then took her into the history of education with a particular emphasis on the processes of decolonizing curriculum and programs in schools that serve Inuit communities. She's the author of the UBC Press book, Inuit Education and Schools in the Eastern Arctic. And upon completion of her doctorate in curriculum studies at the University of British Columbia, her research then returned to focusing on the environment. She uh, seeks strategies by which historical mindedness can help us navigate the emotional burden and uncertainty of our current climate crisis. And her postdoctoral fellowship, uh, which I uh, had the good fortune of uh, meeting Heather while she was here and collaborating with her at the University of Ottawa and her Faculty of Education, her research and partnership with uh, students on ice led to a study of leadership development that helps youth, especially Inuit youth, learn about climate change and emerge as hopeful change makers. So uh, excited and uh, happy to have an opportunity to talk with you this morning. Heather, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. It's really great. Great to be here. I want to tell you, Nick, that uh, I listened to one of the early episodes, Catherine Van Kessel, back at the beginning of the pandemic, and was so excited about what you two talked about that I reached out to her, and we've become uh, good colleagues and collaborators since then. So your your work, your interviews are making a difference, helping people connect, and kind of neat to be here today. Oh, that's awesome! It's it's so it's so great to know that the podcast and and the amazing colleagues that I get to interview, colleagues and friends uh, like you, are able to then make connections with other colleagues. And and uh, Catherine's work is is amazing. And, I, and you mentioned like 2020, and I, I can't believe um, when we first started the podcast for a course in curriculum studies research, and Catherine accepted. It was really the first time that I I, I took to to read her her work more closely, and the students and myself, we really appreciated her work, especially in 2020 when we were just at the start of the pandemic and, and we talk about her work in dealing with anxiety and how you've addressed that in, in the work that you share with me. But I mean, we really didn't know what, what to expect or what to do. And we were all in lockdown really. And at the time we were, I was teaching the course and did that interview. So her work impacted the way we were thinking at that mo- moment in time. And yeah, and I'm just wondering, yeah. like, it seems if we think back to 2020 and kind of not knowing and the kind of crisis that we were facing then, but now I, I don't know how it is for you, but in terms of uh, health professionals and researchers saying like, look, we should all be masking up again right now because to, to, to help prevent the spread amongst, especially amongst youth that are facing like RSV and other uh, uh, respiratory uh, uh, viruses here in the Ottawa area. I don't know what it's like for you in, in, uh, in Kingston or in Queens and, and especially in light of, of having young children. Yeah, sim- similarly, we're, we're kind of getting ready for another, uh, you know, anticipating the winter to be a tough time. And 
and uh, getting back to some of those practices that we had to have in previous winters or, or uh, you know, my kids, have, my son's masked uh, consistently throughout throughout the pandemic at school. And so, you know, but we've still got, caught a lot of colds this year. So we've, yeah, it's been tough. And yeah, I think we just, we just have to keep being flexible, you know, we have to kind of be nimble and and my philosophy is sort of like it's better to be together and be masked than not to be together, right? So that's kind of what I try to say to my students and how I try to live. It's hard. It's it's definitely tiring. <laughs> but like I said, I just being in person, teaching and learning in person, the relationships that you build that way are so important. And if masks can help us do that, we've got to do it. So. Well, I was at uh, Ezra's basketball game on Friday night, and one of the uh, moms who's a co-manager with me for his basketball team, she works at Chio, and and they've just opened up another unit. And she said, if you think about it, the kids that have been born during COVID-19, they haven't really been as exposed to the day-to-day viruses that all of our kids would have been exposed to in the past. So whether it's RSV or, or other forms of colds and, um, and the flu that's going around. So she said, it's just like everything coming together in, in conjunction with kids that haven't really been, they, they've been masking up for almost two years, uh, except for we transitioned last spring in the summer, but really for the kids that were just born into this, haven't really been exposed to it. So it's a perfect storm really in terms of what's going yeah. on right now. But for you, like going yeah. back to teach, are you teaching this semester then? Yeah. So actually I'm teaching at the graduate course I'm teaching right now is contemporary curriculum theory. So uh, we had, my students were uh, selecting a podcast of their choice at the beginning of this semester from Cooking Conversation. And I was like, this couldn't be a better way to give students an opportunity to um, to meet some amazing scholars and start to get the lay of the land, so to speak, and to think about who they kind of want to who they want to meet. We do sort of a thinking with theory approach. So I don't know, you know, Lisa um, today and Alicia Jackson's book, Thinking with Theory, and where they kind of, you know, I, I really encourage students to just meet sort of, so to speak, meet with a scholar that they're interested in briefly, find out what they're about, plug in their own thinking and their own um, curriculum questions with that theorist. And then that's a moment in time, move on, find someone else, meet them, plug in with them, see see by the end of the semester, where do they kind of want to go back and have that deeper conversation, that longer kind of time with that with that curriculum theorist whose work really aligns with theirs. So that's sort of the approach we're taking and, and it's going well. It's really fun. Now hired as a curriculum theorist at Queen's University in their faculty of education. First, thank you for sending uh, your works. I, I really appreciated uh, reading, uh, whether it was an article or book chapter, your collaborations with uh, either grad students um, that you were fortunate enough to work with, but then your own work. And what I what I love about your work is is you take the time to situate what is what would have been the impacts or influences in your own lived experiences? So the, those autobiographical, the autobiographical context that inform the work that you do, and the, and that that is in line with whether whether it's theoretical work that you're taking up, like for example, Catherine Van Kessel's work in some of the pieces, but then also how you're thinking through that work in relation to climate change, for example, or. Uh, climate change in relation to history education or the implications for historical consciousness. Did you ever think that when your parents moved up north in 1973 and you grew up north, that you would be doing this kind of work? Uh, 
at the at the uh, university of uh, at Queen's University? I mean, was this uh, was this on was this on the horizon when you were growing up? And was it at Callaway? Was uh, yeah. primarily where you grew up? Yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. Um, hard question. I mean, <laughs> I I so I come from a family of educators, and uh, you know, back quite a few generations, and and certainly come um, from my grandfather was a, a professor actually at the University of Chicago. There are ways in which you know, I, I kind of knew that education was always going to be important to me, to my family, and that it was a place where important work happens. And, and so being, feeling an affinity to continue on with teaching and learning and writing was, I guess, doesn't come as a big surprise given, you know, sort of my family. But but I've, I've lived uh, all over Canada and, and my family is spread out all over the United States and Canada. And, you know, it was really hard to imagine what my future might be like when I was a kid. Um, cause I grew up in the North and that felt like, felt like where my heart was, but, you know, I was also very, always very conscious of, of being my family's being from other parts of, of the world and being a settler and not, you know, not being an Enoch, not being part of the Nunavut Land Claims Agreement, and that something that I was witnessing happen. You know, I watched that history happen as Nunavut was created and as a lot of change came with that. But I knew that it wasn't, I wasn't a part of it in the way that that, that people who are from that land were. And so where, where was I going to end up? I don't know. That was, that was always a question mark. And in some ways, I, I wish it was closer to the north, or at least since the pandemic, you know, I haven't even been able to visit. And so I do feel I do feel displaced a, a bit from my from that continuity of connection to the land there, but it's been great. It's been great to be in Kingston too, and to start to well to have the opportunity to really um, to make the position my own. Given that I have a you know a job in curriculum theory, it really allows me to kind of follow follow my heart, follow my questions. Do you find that those li- li- the lived experiences or those early lived experiences? in terms of your formative years in the, in the schooling system up north are able to enable you to bring a unique perspective to the kind of work that you're doing, say, now in, in, uh, in the Kingston area or even when you were in Ottawa or, or in, in, in Vancouver, having that prior experience, the kind of conversations that you might have in Iqaluit, for example, as opposed to with community there and the history that you just mentioned that you witnessed, than going to somewhere like say Vancouver or Ottawa or or Kingston. Like I know, like in my conversations with you, the di- those different perspectives that you bring. But I'm just wondering, in light of uh, in light of the work that you're doing now, or even the conversation with students, how does that set you up in terms of your own positionality as wh- whether it's as a citizen here in in Canada or or a curriculum theorist in terms of the work that you do? Yeah, I mean, I I think that there was always a conversation about about bringing the community into the school in the north in a way that I think we still see it as an add-on in other parts of Canada and of course there's exceptions to that but you know the idea that elders should be in the school on a regular basis on a daily basis uh, more than one elder (laughs) right we don't just have one one elder position there's like two three four or more elders coming into the school on a regular basis to to share in teaching language and teaching carpentry and teaching sewing and teaching harvesting and food preparation being viewed as knowledge holders who are important and and adjusting the curriculum and adjusting the ways that schools work to 
support elder teaching and, and going outside with elders too, right? Land trips being viewed as an essential part of, of every year. There are communities in Nunavut where the students raise money to go on land trips and every year that happens for, for every student in the school. And the questions about there's belugas in the bay, hey, you know what, let's, let's everybody run down, down to the water and take a look and we're gonna disrupt whatever we had planned for the, for the day to go and be part of that learning experience. And those kinds of things I think are viewed as an important part in, in many schools in the North as an important part of, of learning. And there's a flexibility around that and kind of a willingness to think about learning um, in a more holistic way and, and to say, what is it that we're willing to let go of so that we can have these community-based learning experiences? And I think that those are the questions that we need to be talking about elsewhere too, right? We need to be getting kids outside. We need to be bringing uh, knowledge holders from the community into schools more. And um, we need to be thinking holistically. We need to be thinking about mental health and, and the well-being of students. And, and we need to be willing to let go of some of the curriculum that's been constructed as really essential. But in fact, something that like I said it's been constructed it's something that we could be we could be willing to let go of and so I would love it you know if we could have more conversations about rethinking an education of value rather than uh, this the schooling right that we have sort of gotten used to expecting it, it could seem so distant and I, I mean distant in the sense that I see my own uh, sons going through high school now with the anxiety of trying to prepare for what am I to do next in university where schooling is all around the values of preparing someone to transition to something else toward what might be in, in terms of a certain kind of workforce that has certain values that are at odds, at least in terms of the researcher can be at odds, depending on, on what, what you're taking up and what's being valued in higher education and the workforce in relation to the, our climate, our current, our current uh, values in relation to the climate. And you, you say uh, in the work that you shared with me that focuses on uh, trying to address questions and meanings and relationships in what you and your colleagues are calling the Anthropocene. And I'm hoping that for others that might not be familiar with that term that listen to the podcast, you could share a little bit about what we mean by the Anthropocene. But much of your work examines the spaces where where we might confront the ethical demands placed on us by, uh, in terms of equity, decolonization, continuity and change, if we're thinking about historical thinking and, and the work that you're doing with others, mm -hmm. and our dependency, as you say, on the more than human ecologies. So yeah, I was just, uh, again, thank you for sending those work. And I know that there's uh, uh, quite a few scholars now in curriculum studies writing in relation to how we might think about the Anthropocene. And I, I'm wondering, I'm not wondering, because I know I've read your work, that there was key moments, but I'm, I'm hoping you can share a little bit more insight on those key moments as you transition from doing, say, your work at, at as a doctoral student and your research at UBC, and then your, your po postdoctoral work where you had the good fortune of then collaborating with uh, Students on Ice, for example, and then transitioning to the kind of work that you're doing now. Yeah, sure. Uh, so I'll take up the Anthropocene quickly first, and then I'll, I'll share a, a yeah, memory. No, yeah, so, yeah, I mean, this is an ongoing debate 
with me and with my grad students, but also just in a, on a big scale, like in the world, right? <laughs> is, and so, I mean, in a very authentic sense, geologists are debating whether or not we have entered a different epoch. And so we're not in the Holocene anymore. We're in the Anthropocene. So that, but it hasn't been officially designated. So geologists who normally are the ones that name the, the epochs, like they haven't made this an official title for the time that we're living in, but they are literally having this debate. And so the is it, does it come down to enough people dying before we, like, do we all have to die before? And then someone's <laughs> like, yes, they all died or most people died during this time. It's now. Well, <laughs> I mean, one of the, and what, so on that point, I mean, one of the issues is like, when would, when does the Anthropocene begin? And so I have a, I have a lesson, uh, um, like a classroom ready history lesson on this topic of when, if, if it is the Anthropocene, like when would it have begun or what is the marker? And that, and the marker would be the thing that signifies that humans are the most dominant force on the planet, or not the most dominant force, but they've become such a dominant force on the planet that there's no part of the planet that has been left, you know, kind of untouched by humans, and that we've actually affected the planet at a planetary level is the thing that they're sort of saying, when did that begin? And one of the um, candidates for that beginning moment is the, the colonization of Turtle Island and you know, north of South America and the massive genocide or the, you know, the massive, the, the death of so many humans as a result of passing pathogens, passing germs, passing, you know, all these diseases, that there actually was a, a change in, in the CO2 levels on the planet. And so we're, that's historic death that is noticeable in, in the geology of geo, geological record of our planet. And you're talking about, you know, future death, I think, but it's really hard actually to, to sort of think about that and to reckon with it. And of course, the, one of the complaints, so I don't, uh, by using the term Anthropocene in my research, I don't uncritically endorse that term as the right term, but I, I'm recognizing that it is a term that's being very much used and that designates our time, or it starts to have, invite us to reflect on what our time means. One of the criticisms of it is that it doesn't acknowledge that different humans have contributed in different ways to that irrevocable impact on the planet and that humans from settler colonial societies are more responsible than humans from indigenous societies, like just as a generalization. But there are lots of other ways in which you could say that the power of particular humans has created the Anthropocene versus some humans who've not participated in an equal measure. and. So I take that criticism, I, I acknowledge it for sure. And it's really, a, it is a problem. The other thing is that by using the term Anthropocene, we're centering humans again, we're, we're, we're perpetuating an anthropocentrism just by using the term Anthropocene instead of, you know, something like capital Ocene or whatever. Yeah. Other, other, there's lots of other, right? Well, it was raised yeah. at uh, COP27 too. And yeah. like, just in terms of what you just said about different nation states in the global South and different uh, expressing that the, we are where we are, beca not because of certain countries or individuals, as you said, but because of the uh, mass consumption and greed and corporate profits in, yeah. in other places of the world. On, yeah. on the part of particular, on the part of particular humans. Yeah, not all. Yes. But, you know, yeah. part of the reasons I use that term still is because of this temporal perspective that is important to me that is bringing together the intersection of a lot of issues that has to do with capitalism, that has to do with settler colonialism, that has to do with 
eating, <laughs> eating too much red meat, like that has to do with all of these things that come together under the umbrella of this time. And also that it's signifying a need to kind of grieve that and a need to think about changes, like deep, deep changes in human experience. And so I, I keep using it because sort of living within and against that term, right? And I think it's useful to to invite critical thinking about what's going on. And it also has a bit, you know, a bit of kind of taken on a life of its own. That term is like thrown around a lot. And so people are starting to recognize with it and grapple with it. But what brought me into this conversation to a large extent was was traveling in the Arctic on a ship. And even though I grew up in the Arctic and, you know, was aware, very aware of climate change through conversations with with elders, with experts, Sheila Wakalutie, who's a, a prominent Inuit environmental activist, lived, you know, down the road from from where I grew up. So but there was something about witnessing it myself from the vantage point of, of a ship on a, a trip through the Northwest Passage where I could see things and I had space to see things in a way that I couldn't in an, on an everyday basis. And partly it was like not having internet access and being there with a group of people who are learning about climate change maybe for the first time and being in conversation, deep conversations, deep and sustained conversations with other people about what was going on and then visiting these really remote and exquisite sites in the Arctic and seeing how they had changed and and imagining their past and imagining their future while you know standing there on the land literally and doing that at a time when I was in transition in my own life between a lot of different things and and kind of it was a wake up call it became a real calling a real moment to say what am i doing with my career what am i doing with my life what matters and what is the what are the contributions that i can make I, you know, I said, what, what is, what is his, what's the role of history education in, in a moment when the future is so, so uncertain. And was that the impetus for putting together that social science and humanities research council grant uh, that I made reference to at the opening? And I'm, I'm wondering, it seems to me like, and I, I'm not, I'm not sure if, I'm not sure if Jackson Pine and Sarah Karn, who, who co-published that article with you, A Wicked Problem, Rethinking History Education in the Anthropocene. And then the other chapter, uh, listening, witnessing, connecting histories and storytelling in the Anthropocene. Did that emerge out of that project or was this kind of like pre or in, in, in lieu of you putting in that Shirk Insight site grant? I was just wondering how, how that took place. And, yeah. you know, get, yeah, again, I've had, I was, you know, sure. pleasure of meeting uh, Sarah uh, several times in Jackson, amazing individuals and the scholarship that they do in their, in their, their own right. And, and, uh, and, and again, like in terms of what you both, it, what you, the three of you shared one in terms of raising it, the, the issue, but that, but then how each yeah. of you are coming at it from yeah, different absolutely. perspectives. Yeah. So the trip that I talked about going through the Northwest passage that happened before my postdoc. And that was what really inspired me to shift the research that I had planned for my postdoc, which was going to be more going into more history on, on the education system in Nunavut. And I shifted to pursuing a partnership with Students on Ice, which is a, a ship-based experiential learning program that takes youth to the Arctic. And so because I had been on a trip myself that became life-changing for me, 
I was interested in studying what that was like for youth and particularly for Northern and Inuit youth who are visiting the Arctic, where they, again, where they associate as their home, but going on, on this trip and seeing it differently. And so that, that's what led to my postdoc research. And then I came to Queens after that and started my, started my job. And again, my, my question became what, as someone who did my, my, my own education in history, whose academic networks are in history and history education, who, you know, has a love for studying historical consciousness and thinking about that, what can I do to contribute to climate change response that draws on my strengths without leaving behind, you know, the sort of my my trajectory up until that point. So I didn't want to just say, I'm going to throw out everything I've done till this moment. I'm going to, you know, jump into this other way of being, or there's only one way to help contribute to the climate crisis. It was like, no, I want to bring people with along with me. I want to talk to my colleagues in history. I want to talk to history teachers. I want to figure out why climate change is so you know clearly associated with geography and the sciences but not often brought up in courses that are supposed to be about change over time <laughs> you know why why aren't we taking up climate change in those spaces and so i wanted to be i wanted to help like open up the tent of, of the climate change response to history people yeah, yeah. and uh, that's when sarah and jackson were were both here at queens doing their doctoral work on different things different projects and I was looking for research collaborators and and hired them both on to help put together the the insight development grant that that we were ultimately successful in securing and we worked on those publications that you mentioned um, and really began to conceptualize this work and it was just really really wonderful wonderful confluence of events that brought us together and and it's been a great collaboration since then and i've learned a lot learned a lot from both sarah and jackson so i really value our collaboration and it continues on uh, even jackson's moved on to trent uh, has a has a, a professor position there and i'm so proud of him and just really excited for trent to have him there but uh we yeah we we, we continue to collaborate yeah, I've I was been fortunate enough to collaborate with him as well on a book chapter with him and Patrick Phillips and Mark Curry that uh, troubles the purposes of the historical purposes of education and how they've been conceptualized uh, from a settler colonial perspective. So it was great to work work with him. I just wanted to come back for a second. You make uh, in this piece with uh, Jackson and uh, Sarah, you you say. Uh, not dissuaded, uh, our research informing this manuscript began with, uh, began with the premise that there must be something significant history education can contribute to the quote-unquote wicked problem uh, of climate crisis. And you make reference to, to Scranton's work and, and, and your interconnection in terms of meeting uh, him and, and conversations, which I, I'd, lo- I'd love to hear a little bit more about. And then you go on um, and you say, we wonder if other historians and history educators share these questions as they renew their approach to teaching in the precarious times of the Anthropocene. And, and, and here's uh, the questions that you, you all raise is, how can stories from the past help students think about change and become more resilient in the face of it? What approaches to learning will best serve students in finding meaningful connections between the past, present, and future while responding to the threats of climate change? What responsibilities do history teachers have for nurturing empathy and modeling ethical relations in a rapidly changing and likely stratified world? And so you, collectively, you ask these questions. And then 
you share another piece where you're taking up these questions with students. And I'm wondering, are you now, like in terms of these questions and working through that, is it now an opportunity now for you to kind of experiment with the questions, if you will, with the students and the kind of feedback? And and how are they responding to, in this piece, again, you frame it through Jonathan uh, Lear's uh, book, Radical Hope, which, you know, Lisa Farley's t- taken yeah. up Jonathan Lear's work. And I've been fortunate enough as well with uh, Linda Radford to address it too. So I'm, I'm familiar with the, the, the concept of radical hope. And you frame it through radical truth, uh, radical hope, radical imagining, and rad- radical teachings. And I, again, and I love the way in which you provide examples of of how teacher educators or fellow scholars might take take that up pedagogically. So yeah, just wondering how that's the the, the this form of radical curriculum or pedagogy or radical curriculum theorizing is going uh, in terms of your work and, and pedagogically with students in the in the classroom, whether that's teacher ed or, or grad studies. Yeah, uh, I was able to teach a, a course in grad studies in the fall of 2020. I think it was during the American election and and a. A pretty bad time, um, a pretty poor time of the pandemic, and the class was called "Teaching in the Anthropocene," yeah. and it was partly me, you know, experimenting with the thinking. Um, I some of those um, scholars that you mentioned, Jonathan Lear and Boris Granton, were on that reading list, and it was an opportunity for me to bring some of these questions, not specifically to history education, but to education in general, you know, how should we as teachers kind of live through this moment and and think about what's meaningful in our teaching and what if we really took it seriously and were willing to kind of let go of some of the structures of, of teaching and learning, of curriculum, and really center our response to climate as as what's giving us purpose. What would schooling look like if we did that? That was, you know, that was the question that I asked my grad students. And and I sort of gave them this scenario, like if if a philanthropist offered you, you know, 30 million bucks or whatever, probably be more than that now with inflation, but let's say 50 million, <laughs> you know, you can create your own school and you can do anything you want with it. And this school needs to be for those youth who are saying like, we're not gonna go to school unless school is addressing our needs in the climate situation that we're in. So you have to you have to create a school that's for those kids who are saying, you know, do something meaningful, do something for us, do something that's making change and then we'll come to school. So we were able to uh, have those conversations and think through those possibilities and it was tough, you know, and it was like it was I mean, as we mentioned, uh, I was just getting into reading Catherine Van Castle's work and thinking about terror management theory and thinking about all of the scary things that were going on in the world at that time and in the midst of that trying to make a you know trying to think outside of what we're comfortable with and what we're um, familiar with and trying to say you know let's push let's push down that barrier let's you know push through that wall let's do something completely different but when you're threatened it's hard to think that way you want to hold on to what you're comfortable with you want to hold on to what's gotten you through to this point you know you want to be able to have some sense of of comfort zone, right? And so that teaching did teach did teach me, or it helped me understand how important it is at the beginning of your pedagogical interventions to make space for the emotional component of this topic. And so that means 
helping people anticipate that they are going to struggle with this and acknowledging that it may present a range of emotional responses that we can predict and that we may not predict. And that the same image or the same reading or the same conversation is not going to hit everyone, leave them with the same emotion. And so for some people, a particular reading is going to leave them feeling really apathetic. And for others, it's going to be the the piece they needed to start to take action. And But what's important is that we have like an emotional literacy and an openness in classrooms at any level with, with students, with adults, an, emotion, uh, an openness to name and sit with the um, the emotions that arise from talking about these difficult topics and then you know adjusting adjusting accordingly right adjusting to adjusting our pedagogy adjusting the content in response to the way that people are are taking up these these tough questions and so I haven't apart from developing some sort of standalone lessons I haven't worked at the k-12 level um, with students yet kind of implementing some of the ideas that I've had with my graduate classes or my, my undergraduate teaching, but gathering resources and gathering thinking and gathering approaches and really trying to work hard on figuring out how, how we can do this. I have to play catch up a bit because this hasn't been my field before, right? So it's like, for you know, I've shifted into this field. I have a lot of homework to do and that's the phase I'm in is like just gathering a lot of strategies. And this area of research is also exploding this climate justice research, climate justice education and eco-anxiety education. These areas are really growing uh, very, very fast right now. So there's a lot to to mm-hmm. read about. And yeah. so that's where I'm at is sort of like bringing all of these pieces from all of these different fields, environmental ed, climate justice education, social and emotional learning, um, history education, indigenous studies, decolonizing, decolonial work bring it all together and saying, you know, what are what are some good ways to invite people into these conversations without leaving them feeling paralyzed or, or, or depressed? That really is, it's not just a risk, it is a very likely outcome of having these conversations. The interconnections that you're trying to make in terms of the, the continuity, and I think even in one of the pieces you said, like the importance of periodization, at least in terms of how we might think about addressing it as a form of part of the historical thinking curriculum, if you will, in Ontario in relation to climate change and, and, and thinking about continuity and change uh, in that regard. You do in the one piece together, the piece on, on it being a wicked problem, um, say that the school strike for climate has come into common parlance following the efforts of Swedish student Greta Thunberg. Her message is simple. If those in power are unwilling to make the changes scientists recommend to mitigate climate change, attending school to prepare for the future is not worthwhile. It, it's, it strikes me like that. You, so you have youth, including Greta around the world, uh, doing collective action. And then what often happens in terms of policy or policymakers, they say, you know, if we make these changes, we can, in terms of, and I hear I'm thinking about curriculum policy in the schools, if we make these changes, just ensure that we have the right schools, the next generation will be able to address the mistakes of of adults in the present. In terms of uh, Jonathan uh, Lear's uh, work and this idea of radical hope or deferment to the future, are there concerns about, once again, like in terms of this work, and I'm not saying the way in which you're taking it up, but that we're deferring almost to, like I'm thinking of my sons or the next generation, like, you know, if we do the things that we do now, we can just, the next generation can fix it. Or or vice versa, like we don't do the, the, the things that we do right now, it's the next generation that's going to 
going to suffer. So I'm just wondering how you're thinking through that in terms of your own work about this current moment in time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's really tough to balance the urgency, the feeling of urgency or the, the sense of urgency with trying to approach it in a way that's, that's healthy and sustainable for people and, and to maintain some sense of continuity so that, (laughs) so that we can, we can kind of handle it. Right. And, and for me, you know, one of the things that has helped me have purpose is establishing a sense of continuity with the past in particular ways that are sort of aligned with what Jonathan Lear is talking about. So where I would say, I don't need to have, I'm, I'm willing to give up on some of the material ways of living in the world that my parents lived. So flying a lot or the idea that we have to have pineapple, fresh pineapple uh, uh, available mm. to us in the grocery store all the time. Those sorts of things that were, that we were sort of brought up to expect we would have that standard of living or a better standard of living. I'm willing to let some of that go, but I want continuity with the past in thinking about, I know that past generations have grappled with questions of justice and that's what brought about human rights or civil rights. And, and so we need to we need to have continuity with the past in grappling with a sense of justice in the face of this challenge. Or I know that loss has been a a human experience, an intense human experience, and is centered in some cultures. Like loss is grief and loss are not something that we bury and and pretend aren't going on in cultures around the world. But in in the culture I grew up in, it it wasn't a um, a common thing to kind of live in grief and to talk about grief and to and to be okay with sort of the the waves of grief that come and go you know there's this sort of like assumption that there's going to be a straight line of of learning or progress out out of our bad emotions into our good emotions and that ultimately we can all we can all be happy and that that's what we're here for is to learn how to be happy you know so like we there's there's certain ways of being in the world that we want to we need to have continuity with certain human ways of being and there there are certain things that we need to let go of and we urgently need to let go of and sorting that out for each person is gonna be a different journey it's complicated I think creating spaces to talk about those things and to say you know it's really hard for me you know if you have family on the other side of the world and the only way to see them is to fly it's gonna be really hard to give up flying but if we're flying you know just for March break like Maybe we could do give up that flying, you know. So we, but we need to have those open conversations about what carbon, uh, you know, what, what the the cost of flying is. In in a, in a just like to see youth being invited to think about that. What are the things that really are core to your to your person, to your family, to your to you being a human, and that are going to give you meaning and purpose in your life? And how can we support? you to have continuity in that even as things will change significantly around you and it's so important that the adults don't communicate the idea that it is the responsibility of youth to to figure this out we have to show them that we're figuring it out with them we are working on it with them we are part of the action and i think showing like that modeling right showing here's an organization that's doing the kinds of things that you could do Here's, here's what I'm doing as an adult. You could join me in it. 
you know, that, that sort of disposition of like, come along with me as I work on it, instead of saying, yeah, deferring, deferring the responsibility to like saying you need to get educated so that you can make a change. Right? We, we can't send that message. Uh, part of uh, Greta's uh, global movement was to call out adults too, to say, hey, stop deferring to the next generation. Right. And I, coming back to the example you used of the pineapple and thinking about you know global trade and accessibility to being able to consume items for cheap, for example, for although we would say due to inflation right now, there's a, things that we you might have taken yeah. for granted that you can't afford. And there's a lot of families that can't afford pineapple to begin with, for example. And thinking about your one piece um, that you wrote in relation to taking up Dwayne Donald's work and, and settler colonialism as a system, and uh, also connecting that to your travels to uh, Labrador, and I think it was Hebron, was it? Yeah, Hebron. Yeah, 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 Hebron. Yeah, and I was thinking, like, even there, the connection between the devastating impacts of settler colonialism. And one of the things I'm trying to think through is, for example, if you go back and reread Duncan Campbell Scott's article in the Scribner magazine, I think it was like 1905, 1906 that he that he published. He like foreshadows like a settler colonial imaginary or like a futurity of of how. Um, settlers across Canada can prosper if we, you know, build the railroad, appropriate mines, extract resources in a way in which it wasn't communicated in, in the way in which, say, for example, the marrow thieves and, and, and the implication for communities, but also the environment itself. And, and when you talk about continuity uh, in terms of thinking about the Anthropocene, for me, the, that one piece in terms of going with youth and looking at the intergenerational impacts of settler colonialism and drawing it away was so powerful. And do you take that? Do you take that piece up with students? And I just wonder the difference between to me. I imagine you being there with the students, and I know what it's like to be with youth and and, and have encounters in person, as you said, or witnessing being on the land. And the difference is then trying to communicate or take that up as kind of like, okay, we're going to read about it now and then have those conversations with students. So I'm just wondering how you're navigating or negotiating that and, and, then, and then trying to kind of find examples of continuity where students encounter, like creating opportunities for them to encounter it, or maybe they bring those encounters themselves once they read that piece in your class. Yeah, that is a great question. I, I mean, I think in terms of with my teacher candidates, I don't, I don't share that piece with them with my teacher candidates I try to take them outside <laughs> I try to to give them their own experience um, and to feel confident yeah. with the idea of taking their students outside and and to get past the many many uh, logistical you know concerns that they have that's often what's on their mind right and um, about about field trips and about having guest speakers, you know, kind of take you, take, you know, be responsible for the teaching on a, on a field trip or on an outdoor learning experience. But I really want teacher candidates to remember how memorable and, and how meaningful and how different outdoor learning is. And so I, you know, that's what I try to do with them is, is give them that experience and then try to emphasize to them, remember how different that class felt for you. Please please look for ways to give that opportunity to your students too. And, and then I just have hope that, you know, 
that there are ways and small ways in which my teaching and the guest speakers who I have come into our class uh, invites them to make you know history or settler colonialism or environmental ethics you know part of that learning that happens to go you know happens to occur outside and um i mean on that note actually jackson um jackson pin developed this great outdoor learning um lesson to go along with the the lesson plan that i mentioned earlier about when did the anthropocene begin jackson was doing a professional development event for teachers in the school board here and he created like this outdoor version of, of the lesson that I had designed to do out on the land. And, and so we, that's available on my website on, on sheen.ca, but it centers this question of when the Anthropocene began and how settler colonialism played a role in that and sort of how there's, it's actually hard to find physical, um, in, some, in some places, it's hard to sort of find a physical place to go and honor that history because it, in some ways it's all around us. It's the way that our you know, our whole world is constructed and in other ways it's hidden. And so that's one of the critical conversations that we bring up in that, in that lesson plan extension is sort of how do we see, where do we see uh, the legacy of settler colonialism, including, you know, the pain that it, that it brought for, for so many community members, for so many indigenous um, communities, particularly, and, and for others um, whose ways of life were, were contained or, or reframed by settler colonialism. That's something I'm, I'm still thinking about and, and, and figuring out as I get used to Kingston, you know, as I learn more about the history here, as I learn more about the landscape here, um, you know, I, I still have so much homework to understand this place and to figure out how to bring those themes forward with students here. How many years now are you? Have you been in Queens? This is your second. It's my fourth. My fourth, fourth year. Okay, yeah. I was gonna be like four. Yeah. So do you do you feel like you're settled now in terms of uh, thinking through the expectations of being an assistant prof, a curriculum theorist? Uh, you know, the, I mean, I asked the qualifying question to start with because how are you now viewing your research and work in relation to, say, for example, the different programs are being offered, or or higher education as a whole, specifically Queen's University and how it's living up or not living up to addressing uh, our current climate crisis or climate change, for example? Yeah, so our teacher ed program has a a mandatory credit in environmental ed um, for the teacher candidates. It's a short course, so it's it's not a 36-hour course. I think it's 18 maybe. I'm not exactly sure, but that happens in in June, which is nice. Our, our, Our program is 16 months consecutive, so our students go to Go to programming through the through the summer, and they they do that in June. So there's lots of opportunities to to go outside for environmental ed, which is really great. I don't teach that course. I teach the elective environmental ed for students who who want to bring that and infuse their teaching with environmental ed. So that's what we call a concentration, and so that's 72 72 hours of basically an elective or a concentration mm. that are are. Um, that 30 of our candidates can take with me. And then we also have some similar other alternative, like we have an outdoor ed program here. And so if you're not taking outdoor ed, you can take environmental, you can't do both, but you can select one of those as a, as a concentration. And so we're proud of that. We're proud that we have those options. I, I love teaching that class. Um, it's really great because we've got students from all the subject areas together, um, PJ, 
primary, junior, intermediate, senior, all together, and we're all talking about lots of different strategies for bringing the environment into our teaching. Uh, so that's been one of the ways that I've gotten to know Kingston and Queens and, you know, this, this territory is through trying to help my students, like I said, get outside and learn um, and learn together. So I've learned a lot through that teaching. And, but, you know, we also, we want to do more and our, our, our Queens University, I would say, is quite aware of the sort of um, UN goals for um, sustainable the UN sustainability goals and is, is working on um, improvements across across the university and our faculty of education had a retreat this year focused on sustainability and I think we're putting together a work plan so I it would be you know I think it would have been great if we'd done that a few years ago and I and I so it feels overdue to some extent that that we get going on centering the environment in our in our teaching and our functioning as a community in the faculty of ed, but it's happening. So I, I am proud of that and I'm happy to be here at this time where it's starting to come to the fore and and not displacing our, our longstanding commitment to decolonization and questions of equity, but bringing those things into alignment with each other. Yeah, it's exciting, an exciting time. And I, I do feel a sense of urgency and I am worried, worried about the other pressures that keep us from keep us from shifting maybe more quickly that that's the case in any system every system right now <laughs> so uh no better no worse probably at, uh although in canada i think we're, we're lucky to be able to not not have uh climate denial be quite such a barrier yeah well i think uh dis, you know d- distractions as yeah. well yeah. that we get caught up caught up in and as i wonder i mean inflation the way in which it's framed right now is like, well, we're, we're, we're prospering too well, or can we reframe and say, we're like, we're consuming too much too quickly. And it it has a cost to it. Um, And we're seeing that cost for some people seeing that cost uh, economically, but it's not necessarily uh, economically only. Right. Uh, And and as you, as you've illustrated in your work, it it impacts uh, different communities. Say for example, up North, um, we don't even really know. Well, some people are studying like the melting of the permafrost, but we don't know the extent to how drastically that's going to impact communities and more than human world uh, moving forward um, if that if that continues to take place and uh, in terms of what we're doing. So, you know, like it, it's great to see that you're working on that at your faculty. I know we are as well. The Association of Canadian Deans are coming out with an accord on on climate change or they've come out with an accord on climate change and I yeah. think they're trying to implement yeah, so, it, right? Yeah. At our faculty, right. we've, this year, we've had a year of action every year um, for the past three years. And this year, the year of actions on climate education and action. It doesn't mean like we just focus on it for a year and like, that's it. We put it aside. But yeah. uh, it's like to kind of uh, provoke everyone to really focus on that and, and look at ways in which we can try to, to be more systematic about that. And yeah, and, and so, you know, just coming back to your, your, your work in terms of doing that, Thinking about that systematically, and in how settler colonialism has worked as a as a logics like that informs everything we do, like higher ed, and I, I think that's what I was trying to get at when I asked that question. How are you moving forward in terms of the work you're doing? And, and I, I don't know if that's the case or not. Um, are you thinking about how your research can provide support for history educators or even colleagues in the field of history education or history? 
might address that in terms of the work that you're doing uh, related to research on the Anthropocene through disrupting settler colonial logics. Um, I know in one of the pieces uh, you said that, uh, I think it was the, in the co-publication, again, going to a wicked problem with Jackson and Sarah about how you see your work being a tonic in response to settler colonial logic. So I'm just wondering, moving forward, what, are we, you know, what, what projects are you working on and what, are, what, 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 what can we expect? What can I look forward to reading next? <laughs> yeah, sure. Well, part of the phase um, of the research that we're in right now is really trying to talk to other folks who've been thinking about this for a while longer than we have, but maybe not in terms of history ed, ed, or, or social studies education. And so I've this summer been doing interviews with experts, uh, researchers, and teacher educators in climate change and other associated fields, right? So, and trying to bring those ideas together so that we can articulate a framework and articulate a pedagogical logic, you know, for addressing these questions at the same time, these questions of, of what are the problems the intersecting problems caused by by settler colonialism and by anthropocentrism and how can we create a way of living differently on on the planet now we've been i've been talking to these um brilliant brilliant people um uh, sort of sort of like focus conversation but we i haven't recorded them for for release but having these kind of conversations what are you know what are you thinking about how can we bring this into history you know do you see any room for collaboration what are some of the key resources that you're using? What are some of the barriers and some of the strengths that you see in the field right now? And a couple of those are, are Indigenous scholars. A couple of those are um, ally scholars who do decolonial work and, uh, you know, climate justice educators. And we're going to be bringing that all together. And we are right now working on coding those interviews and putting together bringing that in conversation with the thinking that Sarah and Jackson and, and myself and, and my other graduate students say, you know, what would it look like if, if we took a really new approach to what history and social studies was focused on and what kind of experiences students had in a history and social studies class that allowed them to prepare for a future that is uncertain and, and to, to imagine a future that is, is not the way that their parents grew up, but is still a meaningful way of being a human. So yeah, I really look forward to sharing that. It's, it's in process and uh, it's been great to mm. imagine this network of people growing and that's what, that's what we're, we're really hoping to support. Well, I, I look forward to reading it and I hope, I hope you share some of the names so maybe I can invite them to come and share some of their insights on Fukum Conversation. Heather, thank you for taking the time on this cold uh, November morning uh, as we transition to the, the, the depths of, of winter. We'll see how yeah. it's been uh, unseemingly uh, warm the, the past yeah. few weeks. I know here in Ottawa and, and, and in Kingston, so we'll see what the winter has to bring. But thank you again for, for your generosity and time coming on Fukum Conversation. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.